Hey, everybody. Join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries. Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the shadows. Shadows. True crime. Paranormal. Hauntings. UFOs. Cryptids and unsolved mysteries. Conspiracy theories. Past lives. Reincarnation. And all the like are just a few of the topics that we will tackle. If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show. Okay, welcome back, fellow shadow people, to Beyond the Shadows, episode 5. This has been a huge week for us, as we've now passed 100 downloads, and I think as of the time we started recording, it was about 120. That's not bad, you know... it sounds it sounds like, you know, you're like, oh, 120 episodes. That's a lot of that's a lot for, you know, just starting out. I'll yeah, take we're, it. We're unadvertised and we've yeah. only been out for like twelve days. Really and haven't at, at, as of today, I think it was today or yesterday, we just got added to Apple Music, which to my knowledge is by far the biggest uh yeah, podcast. It's, it's pulling about forty percent of all podcast streams off of Apple. And we just got on there. It takes the longest out of all of them. The other ones you get on pretty quick. Apple takes weeks. So for us, it's awesome to see that so many of you have come back for more than one episode. Yeah, we got some international listeners. We got a uh, someone from India, um, Ontario, Canada. You know, not a ton overseas. We're hoping to get a lot more. Yeah, that's t- that well, not overseas, but that's uh, one well, in Canada. One, one in yeah, Toronto. Right? That's, 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 that's two international listeners right there. Yeah, we're gonna give some, give some of you guys a shout out, man. We really appreciate you coming back. A lot of people came back for more than one episode, which Absolutely. is awesome. Absolutely, so, we appreciate it. Guys. We've we've got some uh, listens from obviously a lot from Maine. You know, those are the people that we know, or some people that have just happened to come across us because of people that we know. Yeah. We've got Orlando, Florida, Lewiston, Maine, Hookset, New Hampshire, Omaha, Nebraska. That one's because that's where I was at. Um, got some out of Boston, Massachusetts. We have a lot out of Massachusetts. We're going to give a shout out to yeah. those folks in, from Massachusetts, man. You guys are the true podcast people Thank up there. Thank you, fellow New Englanders, for sure. We appreciate yep. it. If we, we ever talk any shit about Massachusetts, that's just in jest. It wouldn't be me. We, it would be Scott. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's no, just that's just the thing between Maine and Massachusetts. Massachusetts has been great to us. But you guys have been guys fantastic. Let me give you some. Out of Massachusetts, we've had Watertown, Jamaica Plains. We had Somerville, uh, Belmont, uh, Boston. There's a bunch out of Massachusetts. We really appreciate you guys. You know, Boston's really, you can tell, not just Boston, but Massachusetts, you could tell they're into the paranormal stuff a lot yeah yeah, yeah well, for which, sure uh, new england has got a huge, new england new england has a huge history in the paranormal and the uh especially the, the true crime you know absolutely we've got all our roots and all and basically what our show covers so yeah it makes sense yep. but we again we guys appreciate you guys checking in for sure we got a few more uh new york new york uh san diego california um uh natick is it natick massachusetts natick natick yeah Pardon me, sorry. Uh, Holdridge, Nebraska. There's quite a few on here. I'm not going to go through every single one of them. But. 
So we got a lot of a lot of listeners, and we appreciate it, guys. So we just wanted to give you guys a shout out and say that we've noticed that you've noticed us, and we appreciate that a lot. And especially all you repeat listeners, it's awesome for us to notice that somebody has come out more than once because then we know that you liked what you heard at least enough to come out for a second time. So that's yeah, awesome. and if you if you're coming back or whatever, if you could pop on there and give us a rating, you know, give us a rating, maybe write a review or something for us. That'd be awesome. That helps get us out there. Maybe tell a friend. You know, we really appreciate Spread that. Spread the word. You know, the other thing I noticed uh, the first couple episodes is Scott's getting mad carried away with the potty talk. So <laughs> yeah, this is going to be a, our first kid-friendly episode. Yeah, it's me. I'm the one always oh, talking yeah, shit. It's just the, it's the, all the shit, all the, the fucking yeah. shit. And then we go with, the, with the, the potty talk. So there's, there's one from Scott, yeah. not me, just one from Scott. <laughs> we'll count it. So last week at the end of our episode, you gave us a little teaser. Uh, I believe it was about Elliot Ness. Uh, what are we looking at today? It was. So uh, this case is from the 1930s in Cleveland, Ohio. And and the guy is called the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. And, and it's a fascinating case. So I'm just going to jump right into it. All right. Let's uh, do it. Cleveland, Ohio was a booming town in the 1920s. Emigrants came in and from all around the globe to become part of the city's manufacturing and industrial backbone. The Depression hit the city hard, however, and it was against this backdrop that this story is set. Elliot Ness was fresh off his fame as the man who got Al Capone when he became the safety director in Cleveland in 1935, putting him in charge of both the police and the fire departments. Police corruption in Cleveland at this time was rife, and the relationship between citizens and the police was not one of trust. It was also in 1935 that a serial killer began preying on the down-and-out of Depression-area Cleveland. A killer emerged who became known as the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run, as well as the uh, Torso Killer. Now, Kingsbury Run is an old riverbed running from the Cuyahoga River, to Ooh, about that's a tough one. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so hopefully I didn't fuck that up. Uh, again, second square. East 90, 90th Street. Just two? You are Bordered on the, yeah, so far. Bordered on the north by Woodland Avenue and on the south by Broadway Avenue. Train tracks still run through the middle, allowing vagrants to come and go quickly. It was a dark and dangerous place in the 1930s, and shanty towns, or Hoovervilles, as they, as they were often called, sprung up to house the down and out. On the east side of the run was the Roaring Third Police District, which housed many bars, brothels, and flop houses. It was the perfect breeding ground for a predator. Now, some researchers and investigators disagree on which crimes can positively be attributed to the butcher, but the first widely accepted victim was found on September 23, 1935. Two teenage boys discovered a decapitated corpse of a white male where East 49th Street dead ends into Kingsbury Run. The body was naked except for a pair of socks and had rope burns around both wrists. The body was drained of blood and the cause of death was determined by the coroner to have been the decapitation. So the dick, de- de- he taking the head off is how he that's a, yeah that's he wasn't a, like I, killed I, and then no, the head no, chopped yeah. off after it wasn't post-mortem the, you know right off the bat the fact that it was a, it's a guy usually when you're talking serial killers it's usually women so yeah, yeah this guy yeah. took a dude's head off 
killed him by taking his head off. That is hardcore. Yeah, no now doubt. Now, the next part, the body had also been castrated. Oh, shit. Fingerprints identified, and this is rare with the, uh, the torso killer. The bodies are not generally identified. Fingerprints identified the body as that of 28-year-old Edward Andresi. He had a minor rap sheet with the police, and his father told police his son had recently had a run-in with a local mobster, providing a possible motive for the murder. He was also known to frequent the Kingsbury-run slums that housed the red light district known as the Roaring Third. While working this same crime scene, police stumbled on a second decapitated and castrated body nearby. The man was white and estimated to be about 40 years of age. The body had no hands and was never identified. The coroner estimated him to have been dead for three or four weeks. Now, this part's a little weird and kind of sets this guy apart. Both bodies appeared to have been treated with some sort of chemical preservative that left the skin red and leathery. Oh, shit. Bit of a trademark for this guy, and it it comes into play later in the story. So then these are just dumped there, then, obviously. Yeah. This isn't the crime scene. No, and these two, I think both of these are definitely not the crime scene. Uh, January 26, 1936. A woman's body parts were discovered wrapped in newspapers and packed in baskets. Left All right, so this guy's equal opportunity employee. Take out the ladies, <laughs> no, he'll, too. He'll do whatever he's going to do. Yeah. Left near the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue. It wasn't until Friday, February 7th, that the rest of the woman's remains, minus the head, were found in a vacant lot on Orange Avenue. The cause of death had again been decapitation. The head was never found. Unlike his first two victims, this time the killer waited for rigor mortis to set in before further mutating the body, uh, mutilating the body in general. He just, he cut him up right away. This time the coroner could tell that he killed her. after the fact. Huh? And well after, then he cut up the body. So maybe this time he... Was the cause of death decapitation The this cause time? of death was decapitation. See, I mean, that's not something you usually see. That's why I keep bringing it up. When someone's usually, you know, they may be decapitated, but that shit comes... After yeah. the fact, not, so, yeah, not that, actually cause of yeah, it's it's, it's 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 weird. So this time he waited and then started cutting up the body. Um, fingerprints identified the victim as forty-two-year-old Florence Palillo, a part-time barmaid and sex worker who had also been known to frequent the Roaring Third. She had been vet- dead for two to three days before the first of the body parts were discovered. Police again wondered if this was a possible mob hit due to her underworld contacts. This is when the mob is like, yeah, this is this a is, lot this is, of mob yeah, stuff going. This, this is just after Capone, right? Uh, yeah, after Capone, so you got like Bugsy Segal, Lucky Luciano. This is like the this is probably like the mob's prime. And uh, are they thick in this area? Yeah, the Cleveland, Chicago. Yeah, sure, so they, yeah. Uh, yeah, not far at all from Capone. You know, yeah, again, so Elliot very well could have been had been part. Wait, this, this, it's not the mob's mo though. No. The, the way these bodies were done, the way the killings were done, it's not. It's not what they did. Uh, so anyway, on June fourth, nineteen thirty six, two young boys discovered the severed head of a white male near East Fifty Fifth Street Bridge. The next day, police found a headless white male body 
uh, under the Nickel Street Railroad Police Building or near it. The man appeared to be in his 20s and was drained completely of blood. The body featured six distinct tattoos and fingerprints were taken. Decapitation was once again determined to have been the cause of death, and the man appeared to have been dead for about two days before discovery. Again, the body had been treated with the same chemical preservative. A death mask was taken, and when no one came forward to identify the body, the death mask was put on display at the Great Lakes Exposition of 1936. Despite being seen by over 100,000 people and featuring the six distinct tattoos, the tattooed man, as he forever became known, was never identified. July 26, uh, excuse me, July 22nd, 1936, a young girl walking in the woods near the Big Creek found the only known victim on Cleveland's west side. The body was that of a 40-ish-year-old white male and the body had been dismembered while the victim was alive. Advanced decomposition made identification difficult, and fingerprints were no longer possible. This one was chopped up while still alive. Uh, Wow. Yeah. The body parts were found nearby a bloody pile of clothing with the head not too far away. The crime scene and body site appeared to be the same, and the victim was estimated to have been dead for about two months. So in this in this case, at least, uh, where the body was found and where he was killed seemed to be one and the same. There was no movement. How tight is this time frame that all these people are showing up? Is this like months? The entire, no, it's, it's, it's about four years. Okay. Four years. The whole, all right. There was by this time little doubt that a serial killer was at work. Ness assigned two full-time investigators to the case. Peter Merlo and Martin Zalowski. Nice. On, yeah, <laughs> fucking nailed them. And, uh, again, third swear. <laughs> on September 10th. Yeah, you're doing horrible. Uh, yeah, I'm not. And this is the best I can do, positively. On September 10th, 1936, a transient was running to catch a train when he tripped over some body parts. I mean, that's, you know, when it's getting bad when there's just random people. Yeah. Running for a train and tripping over body parts. Yeah, that's, 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 when, that's when shit gets <laughs> ugly. Uh, it turned out to be the upper part of a man's torso. Police came down to search a nearby cesspool or an open sewer. Essentially, yeah, just how you describe it, I guess. And a large crowd gathered to watch. Police sent in a diver who was able to recover the lower part of the torso as well as parts of both legs. The body was again a white. Oh, that's awful. He's he's diving in in, in a sewer and find a body for body parts. Oh man, I don't know what they paid him, but it wasn't enough. (laughs) The body was again a white male, estimated to be in his twenties, and had again been castrated as well as decapitated. The head was never found. This guy, the killer, the, the, the killer had to have been extremely confident in his abilities as the body showed no hesitation wounds, as well as extraordinarily strong as the pe- the head appears to have been taken off and in one single stroke. All right, I mean, it, that's just insane. Explain to me, what what do they mean by, do you know what they mean by hesitation I, I do. wounds? So, I mean, if, if you or me who don't have any skills, like so trying to cut off an arm or something, we'd probably be dicking around. You don't. You, yeah. Yeah. So we'd probably be dicking around in the corner, would be able to tell that, you, you know, you, you hit it once here, you changed your angle, whatever. Okay. So you don't know what you're doing. Right. And this person, what, what they did 
was single stroke, absolutely knew what they were doing. They didn't hesitate. They didn't change angles. They didn't screw around. So, I mean, it seems pretty certain that this person had butcher training, medical training. Some kind of knowledge. Yeah, it wasn't a schmo off the street. I would have absolutely no idea how to dismember a body. I'm going to work on it. After doing this (laughs) podcast, I probably should know. And by the time I've... I can't say it's not interesting. All right, right, by episode 15, I'm going to (laughs) know. We like to set goals. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, down the road, I will probably know exactly where to do it. But, uh, uh, yeah, so according to the coroner, this guy knew what he was doing. There was no hesitation marks there was no hacking the guy cut body parts off exactly where a pro should have done it exactly as a pro should have done and the fact he lopped off a head i don't even know if a pro could do that a single stroke you're talking it's, through the whole neck through the spine you i don't i'm know, not an man, expert that's... but that seems like not only was he skilled just phenomenally strong Right, so probably some big dude. I'd imagine. I'm guessing. Am I wrong? I mean, yeah, that just I seems think. like you're talking about a horse of a dude. Like I don't know. I mean, you see that stuff in uh, movies, but in real life, be able yeah, to take Jay- head yeah. off. Jason does that well, shit all the time. But Jason's a big dude, <laughs> and that's real footage. Right, <laughs> <laughs> that's real life. So at this point, the press and the public were in an uproar. Six victims, no arrests. The county coroner told the press, and this is a quote. The killer is apparently a sex maniac of the sadistic type. This is indicated by the condition of his victims. He is probably a muscular man, which we just covered. There's no doubt about that. The Slayer definitely has expert knowledge of human anatomy. The incisions of his knife are clean and were made in each case without guesswork. He may have gathered his knowledge of anatomy as a medical student, or it is possible that he is a butcher. There it is. So Ness was instructed by the mayor to make the torso killer his top priority. Murillow and Zelowiski spent long hours on the case and often roamed the Roaring Third in street clothes, making their way through the seedy streets, hoping to catch a lead. Right now, Ness is pretty much a hero, right? After taking down Capone? After taking Capone. But yeah, so in this case, he hasn't, I mean, he's doing his best, Right, but I mean, before this, they expect a lot. From yeah, it's Elliot Ness. Man. Yeah. yeah, he's Elliot Ness. He wasn't brought in because of this guy. Just so we, just so we're clear, he he was his, his coming. His coming there. into Cleveland had nothing to do with this case. Uh, he was brought in essentially to clean up corruption among okay. the police and and clear it up. And then this guy just happened to hit, and then all of a sudden everybody's like, "Dude, you gotta you gotta take care of this." Uh, by the end of the case, the two police, just just those two chief investigators, had interviewed over 1,000 individuals. The police as a whole interviewed over 5,000. It was, and, and to my knowledge, still the largest investigation in Cleveland history. Wow. On February 23, 1937, a young woman's upper torso was washed up on Balua? Park Beach. I apologize if I got that wrong. She was estimated to be dead for two to three days. About three months later, the lower part of her torso was also washed up on East 34th Street. According to the coroner, this was the first victim who didn't die of decapitation. Although decapitation did take place, this time it was post-mortem. The rest of the body was never found, and she was never identified. There's a lot of missing body parts out there. Yeah, man. a lot. It's weird they were never found. I mean, I guess, you know, 
A lot of them, the heads weren't found, right? Yeah, and arms and legs and shit. And it's, it, the, yeah, there's going to be a disgusting amount of body parts kicking around Cleveland. But, uh, <laughs> Somewhere. <laughs> uh, on June 6, 1937, a young boy found a woman's skull under the Lorraine Carnegie Bridge. Next to the skull in a burlap bag, police found the remains of a petite African-American woman believed to be about 40 years old. The skeleton was missing a rib, and she had likely been dead for about a year. Using some unique dental work, the police were able to non-conclusively identify her as Rose Wallace, a part-time sex worker and a regular in the Roaring Third. Police followed all leads on Wallace and again came up with nothing. On July 6, 1937, a young National Guardsman standing near the banks of the Cuyahoga River, Mm. uh, if I got that wrong the first time, I got it wrong again, on the West 3rd Street Bridge saw a body part floating in the river in a boat's wake. Over the next few days, police pulled most of the body out of the river, including the upper torso and a grain sack. The head was not recovered. He had been dead two to three days, and it was estimated to be in his mid to late 30s. The abdomen had been gutted, and the heart ripped out. This was also not found. Now, clearly the killer was growing more vicious. This man was never identified. So at this point, the case takes a bit of a turn because they have a suspect now. So an informant at Osborne State Prison made authorities aware of a character named Francis Sweeney. Sweeney was a World War I veteran, a brilliant Cleveland doctor and surgeon, and an alcoholic who disappeared for days at a time. He checked himself in and out of rehab on a multitude of occasions. Ness ordered him secretly followed as Sweeney was the cousin of Ohio Democratic Congressman Martin Sweeney. Sweeney had been openly, this is the Congressman Sweeney, Sweeney had been openly critical of the investigation at this point. So oh, at, of course. So at this point, Ness has got to tread, I mean, this, if, if you're Ness, you've got to tread lightly now. You've got one of your main opponents, you're dealing with his cousin. The guy's yeah, been so ripping got, the case to shreds. You got a politician on one side, you got the people on the other. Yeah, the people want, want, want blood. The they politician want... is not going to deal with you. Right. So you're going to lose. It's a lose lose. Yeah. Yeah. Ness is, yeah, he's in the grindstone now. So I, I kind of get where he was at. Um, uh, yeah, you got to tread lightly. It's your guy. If it's your guy, it's your guy. You know, right. take right. the bastard down. I'm sure that's, you're talking about Elliot Ness. You know, that's how he, he wasn't going to bend anybody. So no. he was going after this guy. And, yep. and we'll get to that. Uh, Hell or high water, he's going to try to get his man. And that, that's what you want. Right. I mean, it's it's not about for. the political crowd. It's, you know, it's. Unfortunately. It shouldn't be about the political yeah, it, uh, cloud. Uh, unfortunately, it is. If this is your lot. guy, no, it is. And it is nowadays, and it probably was then. I, yeah, it's probably uh, worse now. But So on April 8th, 1938, a young laborer on his way to work found what turned out to be the lower part of a woman's leg on the banks of the Cuyahoga River. On May 2nd, a human thigh was found floating in the river. A month later, police found two burlap bags in the river containing the rest of the legs and most of the torso. The head and the arms were never found. The coroner found drugs in her system, but there was no way to determine if she was a user or if the killer had actually used the drugs to immobilize her. She, again, like most of the victims, was never identified. At this point, Nest had investigators 
kidnap Sweeney, literally oh, kidnap him from a street corner and brought to a Cleveland hotel suite. So he's not dicking around anymore. And I, I like the aggressiveness, although it's yeah, way, I mean, <laughs> I mean he'd have everything. That would fly, yeah, wouldn't fly today. It would not fly today. Uh, Sweeney was so intoxicated they needed to allow two to three days for him to be co- become coherent enough to interrogate him. After several days of getting nowhere with Sweeney's answers, Ness called in Leonard Keeler, an early expert on the polygraph machine. Keeler tested Sweeney several times and concluded, and I quote, That's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I say anything different. Nonetheless, there was no physical evidence to incriminate Sweeney, and he never confessed. And back then, I don't think still polygraph. No, they're still to this day not admissible, and they weren't then either. Uh, So Sweeney never confessed, and after a week, Ness was forced to let him go. That's my chair here. Okay. (laughs) I kept hearing this this squeaking. On August 16th, 1938, vagrants searching a dump site for food found the torso of a woman wrapped in men's clothing and wrapped then again inside a quilt. The legs and the arms were found wrapped in butcher paper and placed inside a nearby box. The head was also found and was also wrapped in butcher paper. She was never identified, and Detective Merlot would later state in his memoirs that he doubted whether this victim was one of the butchers due to the fact that there were actually traces of embalming on the body. That same day, while investigating the female body, Police found a second victim only yards away from the first. The body was that of a decapitated male and had likely been there for several months. No cause of death could be determined, and the body was never identified. But these these last two bodies were found with an eyesight of Ness's office window, as though the killer deliberately placed them there to taunt him. And if the killer was looking for Ness's attention... He got it, which we'll get to in a minute. So we discuss this. Now, if it was Sweeney, because they just let him out. Right. Now, the next two people are, boom. That's that's Sweeney saying, and I'm not going to say it because I said I'm not going to swear. That's Sweeney (laughs) saying, F you. Right? Yeah, maybe. Or Or, or whoever the killer is. Or it's somebody knowing that they suspected Sweeney, so they're trying to make it look like it's Uh, Whoever the killer is, it seems to be little doubt the message was, F you. There's no, I mean, Cleveland's a big City, as your dad knows, right? He's from yeah. familiar with the area. Uh, uh, you 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 know you don't just end up outside Elianessa's office. Like, no, you know, no, that with was all, all the stuff. You know those two yeah. bodies. That was a deliberate drop site, and I don't think anybody could come to the conclusion that it wasn't like Elianess. Here I am. What are you going to do about it? Right. Uh, so so if they wanted a response, like I said, they got one. Two days later. On August 18, 1938, Ness descended on the shanty town of Kingsbury Run with several dozen police and fire personnel. They evicted over 300 people. They detained 63 for questioning. They searched for clues before burning the shanty town to the ground. Ness was hit hard in the press for these actions. That ain't cool, man. But all he, these homeless people. No, yeah, no, just, I, yeah, wow. it's not cool. Shanty town, he burns it down. But, but he justified it with the argument that if the shanty town was the hunting grounds, then it should be eliminated. Now, in Ness's defense, if if there is any defense, no victims were found after the burning of the shacks. 
So was Ness right? Or did it have something to do with the fact that Sweeney checked into rehab two weeks after the last murder? Sweeney continued to send taunting letters to both Ness and his family until his death in 1964 um, oh. from from asylums and all kinds of shit. Sweeney was in and out of Wow. He was never convicted of never anything. Never convicted of but, this. But yeah, uh, Ness and others, a lot, a lot of others involved in the case remained convinced of Sweeney's guilt, but felt they didn't have enough for conviction. And I, I'm not going to get into everything I've read because I've read more that's not going to fit into this episode. But it sounds to me like Sweeney was probably the guy. You think guy. Sweeney like was the Sweeney, guy? Sweeney was probably the guy. There's, there, there's a little bit more to the story that I probably should have included, but the guy was... Love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more? Check out my podcast. Hi, I'm Kadra, the host of Perplexity, a Mystery Podcast. I tell tales every single week that have left me perplexed. You'll hear true crime cases, mysterious disappearances, learn about cults, hear baffling sightings of cryptids, chilling paranormal encounters, and even dark and weird history. I release new episodes every Wednesday, and you can listen anywhere podcasts are available. I'm also on Patreon, and you can even watch me on YouTube. Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Stories that will leave you perplexed. Was there any other major suspects in this or is we just, there, just yeah, no, right, so yeah i will get to that in one second there was another okay. suspect so this i want to include this because whenever you get a serial killer or any stuff like that it's after the fact that like okay this person might have been involved this person not not sus- suspects but it's hard to nail down like uh, with like jack the ripper they got five known victims but in looking at it after, they're like, okay, this person might have been a victim. This person might have been a victim. And it was the same with the torso killer. They can't quite agree on exactly okay. who the torso killer nailed. And then you always get a copycat. Or you get a like copycat. That, so yeah. this one, to me, is without a doubt a butcher victim. But he or she, excuse me, she is not always included on the list. So this, so a year before the first confirmed butcher victims. On September 5th, 1934, a man was strolling the shores of Lake Erie when he found the dismembered remains of a torso. The body was that of a female, and no arms, legs, or head were ever found. The coroner estimated that she had been dead for about six months and that the body had been treated with some sort of preservative that turned it red and leathery and allowed it to remain afloat. This certainly, to me, implies that she was the earliest victim of the butcher. So how many of these had were actually had this chemical or whatever? Is it is it like a good percentage of them? Yeah, it was, I was at least half. So I mean, she was we never at least identified. Know those ones are connected. She was never identified. And to this day, the pro, the press refers to her as the lady in the lake. She's not always known as a butcher victim, but I don't know how you can hear it, what I just said and not. Yeah, you're I mean, talking. A year, not even a year before the first victims emerged, she was treated with the same chemical. She was butchered in the same way. I mean, she's. I don't, Did they? If ever you're asking f- me, she was clearly a victim yeah. of the butcher. They ever find out what this chemical was that they were treated with? It wasn't I, like it, but I, other times they've had embalming fluid. That one, one victim one. had embalming fluid. So and that, Mer- Merlot said 
she wasn't a victim in his opinion. And maybe there's some water into that. You're talking about the, the right. investigator. Uh, so I, mean, I, I don't know how I didn't include her on the def- definitive list of victims because she isn't. But in my opinion, she's absolutely yeah, his mean, first victim. I don't know. I don't know how you can possibly arrive at any other conclusion. Right. How many killers are running around there using preserve? I don't even know how you would yeah, do that to this chemical. day. Like a, a preservative yeah. to turn the skin leathery. It's it's pretty cut and dry to me. Uh, so to answer your earlier question, in 1939, police made an arrest in the murder of butcher victim. Flo Palillo, 54-year-old Frank Dolenzal had lived with Flo in the early part of the decade and also knew victims Rose Wallace and Edward Andresy from around the third. And you're talking about those are the only three victims that were ever identified. He was beaten by police until they got a confession, which he then retracted. The confession was a mixture of gibberish and exact details which makes it seem as though the confession was coached. Before he could go to trial of the crimes, Dolenzal was found hanging in a cell. The autopsy revealed six broken ribs, which were all incurred while in custody. Mm, He had no medical or butcher background, and it was very unlikely he had the ability to have committed these crimes. In my opinion, just my opinion, he was not the guy. They beat the shit out of him because they needed... They needed a guy. Yeah. They needed a guy. And most people, experts from articles and stuff I've read, he's not the guy. They they screwed him. You got to have medical ability to have done what the butcher did, some sort of training, oh, some yeah. sort of ability. You don't, you don't swipe off a head in one stroke. Chop him up the way that he did. Like, again, no hesitation marks. That means you know what you're doing. Like, I wouldn't know where to cut off a wrist or an arm. I just wouldn't know. So you're going to see marks of where I'm frigging around. Hitting the wrong spot. This guy didn't do that. Or girl. Or girl. Uh, And the chemicals thing. That's the thing. I don't know what the goal there was. But, uh, yeah, it's the person. I wonder if it was something to treat hide. You know, it could, if someone was a butcher and they did the hide they, and yeah, stuff they, like they, that. They, they said it turned it all leathery and stuff. So yeah. Then, so, I mean, you know, if you're doing uh, butchering cattle, does the butcher do anything with the hide after the fact? I would think they have to do something. I mean, they're selling yeah. it off. I don't know if they're, but. You know, I don't know, but, you know, you're right. They, they do they, use they do chemicals and stuff for that. So, I don't know. This person, in my opinion, fits a, a certain mo like today they have like the the crime scene they do like the 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 portrait you know, the uh the profile right the profile in in uh this guy doesn't he doesn't fit it to me he doesn't fit it he's not the guy sweeney very well could have been the guy this guy wasn't there there was just the police they, in my opinion they had they had to have someone yeah you need so they came up with something the fact they that needed he needed to win the yeah. fact that he knew flow the fact that he knew three of them, I, I don't know how big Cleveland was at the time, but it's not unheard of that he knew three of them. They all hung out in the same slums. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, how it, big it, were those it, slums? Maybe it's a bit of a stretch. I, I don't know. But I mean, again, yeah, I mean but might, the slums getting, couldn't have been that big. No, I mean, maybe you know? he's getting screwed just because he knew three people. Right. I mean, I, I know a bunch of people. Maybe some of those people know other people. It could be a coincidence. To me... Again, I'm not an expert. To me, he's not the guy. It seems like a stretch, but but there is some evidence. Uh, just just I guess the only evidence is the fact the only anyways. the only evidence is the fact that he knew three of the people. But uh, right. Uh, so no one was ever convicted for the killings, and the identity of the killer remains unknown to this day. 
Only three of the victims were ever identified, and only two of those positively. The third is just suspected. Some speculate that the butcher was the same person who committed the Black Dahlia killing of Elizabeth Short in 1947 Los Angeles. But for me, that seems like a major stretch. Uh, similarities? Is that why? No, or? not really. I mean, and I'll, I'll go with that right now. Her body, uh, Elizabeth Short's body was posed which was not done in any of the, which she was specifically posed, which was not done in any of the Cleveland murders. Her arms, legs, and most importantly, her head were still attached. Both killers mutilated their victims, but the similarities end there. And you're talking nine years between the end of the Kingsbury Run killings and the Black Dahlia. They were done in Cleveland. She was done in Los Angeles. Like to me, it's I I, I don't really see any similarities whatsoever. No, nah, there's no ammo other than the fact that there was, there was a knife or a blade involved. There's no similarities. I mean, I, I I think that's just like those those web sleuths just reaching like right. really reaching. That's a big it. reach, I think. Again, like I said, head, arms, legs attached. The the torso killer didn't do that. He posed her body, in a, from what I've read, I've never seen the picture. I've seen some of the pictures. Her body was posed in a, in a suggestive way, I'm guessing, like something dirty. Uh, that didn't happen in any of the torso killings. Like, I don't I don't know how you go from one to the other, but they're... This happened over four years, you said? If tales of ghostly hauntings... Bigfoot encounters, extraterrestrial interactions, and cosmic awakenings are your cup of tea? Then join me, Eric Salagi, host of Uncomfortable Podcast, every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Make uncomfortable your home for the topics that reside on the fringe of our reality. Eyewitnesses, researchers, and experiencers Join me on a weekly basis to delve into their paranormal and otherworldly experiences. Heard in over 65 countries worldwide, follow Uncomfortable Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your casts. Uncomfortable is now presented in video form on YouTube as well. So, as always, my friends, stay uncomfortable. Uh, so the lady in the lake was 1934. We're assuming she was the first victim. The last victim was 1938. The, this is all Cleveland. The Black Dahlia was 1947, Los Angeles. You're talking, what, 1,500 but miles After those away. four years, it just stopped. Uh, no. I, again, you'd have to read further, and I don't mind delving into it in another episode. There were... Again, there's always going to be, once they start looking, this guy might have been, this guy might have been. Somewhere There else. were like three transients uh, had their heads cut off in like a, in a rail car maybe three or four years later. I'm pulling that out of my ass. I remember reading about it, but I didn't write it down. I don't have it in front of me. But, uh, I mean, if you crisscross the country, you're always going to find something that fits. Right. It's, it's hard to know. It was a lot was tougher positive. to link things back then. Yeah, and it, sure. it probably still is today without the DNA. But back then, they, I'm, I'm guessing they could have nailed this, this dude or or, or girl. Um, so, yeah, those are the cases that are positively attributed 
Yeah, I, again, I think the lady in the lake has to be added to that list. I don't know how she possibly couldn't have been. So, what kind of numbers then are we looking at? How many? So I think known? I think the lady in the lake would make thirteen. Thirteen victims, nobody arrested. No, and other than Sweeney and uh, uh, and usually if there's thirteen, there's more. If they found thirteen, that and, they and yeah, he, he probably usually did. more. Out yeah, there. he probably did. This dude was sick, man. Like those 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 aren't like minor like calm crimes that's a there's some rage there and like these people weren't all like connected to the mob or anything like that no you only so had the, I mean, the you only had the couple with mob connections which is right, i so get that, that which is what of, i get where the police investigated the mob in the early stages because those two people had mob connections but most of those were just down and out people from the run like they didn't Right, you could see the first one. It's like a message, you know. The mob would do that kind of yeah, stuff. Oh yeah, they would they really would, yeah. hack someone up to send a message. But these other people aren't connected to the mob at all. Dropping them outside of yeah. Ness's office—that doesn't read mob to me. Um, yeah, that's that's nuts. That's ballsy, you know. That's not smart. Taunt the guy that's after you, but that's how a lot of serial killers are. And in. It, I can't say that ended Ness's career, but for all intents and purposes, like he was never the same after that. He uh, he didn't recover from that again. Like he wasn't the chief inspector; it wasn't even his job. But he was told to like nail this this case down. He was in charge of the police. He was in charge of the fire department. So I guess it falls on him for sure. I mean, if you if you're the top guy, yeah, you you reap the rewards of the success and you eat it when when stuff goes bad and. And uh, and he did. I don't. I don't think he got fired or anything or as a result of that. But his, you know, his reputation was never the same. And and that's a. I mean, he was the man after taking. Yeah, he went from yeah the guy who yeah. took down Al Capone to the guy who failed to get the Mad Butcher of Kingsbury run. So uh, and, and and he did, and they did. Uh, his burning down the the shanty town did end it, but it's a really questionable move. At the very best, these guys had these people had. No place to live. They had jack shit to begin with. They had next to nothing, and I'm guarantee you they lost what little Wait, bit they did have. No, yeah, they the, didn't. Yeah, they it, no, nothing. The article said they were allowed to remove their possessions. He burned shanty towns down. Like they didn't take shit out. Like it was gone. So it's a really debatable move. Did he leave really? town after this? You do that to that? Not, many not people? directly after this. No, but it wasn't long. You burn yeah. that many people, you got to have a target on your back. Uh, so before I forget, in writing this piece, I referenced the uh, the Kingsbury Run murders by James J. Bedall on the Cleveland Police Museum website. I also used Torso, the story of Elliot Ness and the search for a psychopathic killer from 1989 by Stephen Nickel. And I also used the, uh, the transcribed version of... Uh, the tre- the Cleveland torso killer murder episode by the podcast Unresolved. I'm not I'm not exactly sure how you uh, mention a podcast, but that that's yeah. You I listen to a lot of podcasts. I'm like I'm a I didn't audio- listen to it, but I, I read their their transcribed their episode is excellent. Yeah. So I read the the for me when I do my research, I have. I, I, I do a lot of reading of articles and, you know, books or parts of books or whatever, but I need to hear 
You know, that's the way that I take in information the best. And, and I generally podcasts do. Such I was, a good. I was bouncing between like three websites because they had so much information and I was trying to make sure it was all right. And it was only afterwards that I realized I was actually dealing with a podcast because they transcribed it. So I oh, wanted to okay. mention them. I didn't listen to it. I thought it was a website. I thought it was a website and gotcha. they had some awesome information on there. It was a really well done website. So it was only afterwards when I was trying to, to, trying to note these sites that I realized it was a trans transcribed version of an actual uh, podcast. So so the podcast is unresolved, just so I make sure they get their due. Go check and, them and, out, and, and it was the Cleveland Torso Killer episode. So I didn't listen to it, but again, their information was excellent. So I want to make sure they get their credit for that, because like, like I said, a, a good deal of my information came from that. Yeah, you know, I'm finding this. I'm doing my research on different stuff that... There's so much information out there coming from podcasts. These guys are doing their work. And oh, yeah. Out there. I mean, Absolutely. The and I, and I hope, yeah, it'll be flattering if someday I'm online and I see that somebody is referencing Beyond the Shadows. Right. Uh, because I think with each episode, we're getting better. We're getting more in detail. Uh, we're nailing stuff down a little bit more. I, I you know. We'll continue to suck less. We promise oh, you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. By episode six, we should be, you Just, know, the suck it should be no more than 35, 40%. All right. No, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> 35. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. We promise. We'll, the we'll do our best to keep doing better and better. I, I hope you guys liked uh, this episode. I like this, uh, man. You know, this is an interesting case. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's serial killer. Again, we're going to get to uh, some ghost stories and some uh, cryptids. They're, they're coming, I swear, in the pipeline soon. But this, this case for me was just too fascinating to uh, sit on the burner any longer, so I wanted to work it. Uh, yeah, good job, man. really what liked it. do you know? What do you have for us coming up next week? Uh, next week, I'm going to jump into a ghost story. We're going to do... Uh, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do yet. You'll see next week, but it's a so we got a ghost. It's a famous the, one. We got yeah. a ghost story in the pipeline. Yeah, we got that, and then I think maybe on one of my episodes coming up, I'm gonna going to actually tell uh, the story of the haunting of the hospital I used to work at. So Excellent. I think that's coming up. I think I'm going to do those one after another. So you got a couple. So you got a couple ghost. Stories got a couple coming. So that right. that's my I, that's what I love. I love the ghost stories. So I like I, the yeah. UFO stuff yeah. a lot. Um, I do like true crime, but it's it's never been like my big thing. My, you know, everything I've looked at, researched, all that. A lot of it's you know the paranormal. Yep. So I'd like to I like to find a good story that's uh you know both in one. You know. Yeah, those ones. Yeah. So like, like the Bennington Triangle, if if that was a bigger story, because that's got like when we covered that what, two or three weeks ago, but uh. That's got everything. Yeah, yeah, a lot of stuff happening there. <laughs> it's got everything. Yeah, a little bit. It wasn't a feature story, but every now and again, you're one of those cases that just has a bit of everything. Right. Well, guys, that was the first part of our show, and now we're going to take it to the fire pit. All right. Let's go. Let's do it. You know what time it is? What time is it? Fire pit! Fire pit! Fire pit! <laughs> Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. 
Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. I've always been a big fan of history and primarily U.S. military history. Uh, Back in 2016, when my little man was not even a year old, we took a trip down to Gettysburg. I mean, when you name your child Lincoln, you pretty much have to take him to Gettysburg. Um, So we stayed at a little B&B that was just off the side of the battlefield and on the main road that ran through town. It was uh, called the Emmitsburg Road. I forget the name of the inn, but it was definitely an older-style quaint, you know, a little home that definitely existed during the time of the battle. So we drove down, and we didn't get in until after dark. So after dinner, I decided I would take a stroll down and check out the battlefield a bit. So I walked maybe a quarter mile or so, and I came upon a sign that said the Peach Orchard. Now, I know from my readings that this is where some of the fiercest fighting of the battle took place. Uh, Major General Dan Sickles of the Union Army had lined his men up 1,500 yards from where he had been ordered to place them by General Meade. Uh, The Confederates assaulted this position and drove the Union troops into a retreat, costing the lives of over 1,200 men. Now, when I reached the spot on the Emmitsburg Road where the sign was for the Peach Orchard, and it literally says, the Peach Orchard, and and it still is to this day, it's a Peach Orchard. I wandered off the road and into the orchard maybe 150 yards. Uh, There's no just so clear there's no fence there's no nothing keeping you off it's it's like a peaceful road that runs through the middle of town and there's like a little sign that you and i would say like nothing keeping apple you out there. and there's nothing there's just a, like a wooden sign that says the peach orchard and i know from my reading that's some some serious shit but it's otherwise if you didn't know it's, it's just a peach orchard and there's there's nothing of if significance that, if you didn't know yeah if you weren't from it town yeah. it was just a sign that says the peach orchard and follows in fact behind it a, a peaceful peach orchard uh so I wanted off the road into the orchard for maybe 150 yards or so. To this day, it's literally still a peach orchard, and it was springtime, so when it was nice out with the cool temps, there was blossoming trees and all that. Like it, it was, it was, it's really nice in the springtime, probably all the time of year. It's peaceful, and you get all the smells and that stuff. So it's, you wouldn't know it was a battlefield if you didn't know it was a battlefield. Now, it was an absolutely moonless night, so it was pitch dark out there, and I couldn't see a thing. I didn't want to use my phone for light, just in case there were any park rangers or anything. Although it was silent, you never know. I'm pretty sure you shouldn't be there out there at night. So I was just kind of hanging out there for a while, taking it all in, when I hear some kids hooting and hollering a good ways off. It's hard to say with how sound carries over an open battlefield, but I'm guessing they were at least a half mile away or more. After a minute or two, I hear a booming voice yell, Hey, you! You aren't supposed to be there. Get out of here. In the same general direction the kids' voices were coming from. I kind of chuckled to myself that they get caught by the ranger instead of me. Until maybe two minutes later or so, when the exact same voice yells again, but this time right in front of me. Hey, you! What do you think you're doing? Get out of here! So it took a second to set in that it was the same voice and that it was definitely talking to me because he had just spoke at least a half mile away, and now here he was right in front of me. It was so dark that I couldn't see anyone, 
but the night was silent and I am positive that no one had approached me. I had no lights on me and hadn't made a sound, so I have no idea how anyone earthly could have known I was there. And I walked slowly back to the, wor- uh, to the road without saying a word. And when I got there, I turned around and real quick, I shot a series of photographs with my phone. Ooh, did you catch anything in this I photograph? Did. I did. I did. So after he told me to leave, I did. I walked back to the road without any sass, which is hard for me, you know. Yeah, it's really tough. Uh, so, you know, it was just a weird feeling. It wasn't it wasn't terrorizing. So you didn't see anybody? No, I didn't at the time. Like I said, it was pitch dark. The guy told me to get out of the field. I, it was weird. It was an off-putting situation, but I get it. I wasn't supposed so to. So you think in disembodied voice I kind of thing? I think it was a disembodied voice. Yeah. There was no one there? You didn't see no, anybody? Didn't and the, the, most, the most telling part for me was that it was silent. I was just leaned up against a tree. Nobody approached me. I would have heard them. There wasn't a sound of a twig breaking, a foot. You know, nobody approached me. And it literally went a half mile in like two minutes. At least. When I say they were a half mile away, I think that was a conservative estimate. They were at least a half mile away. So the guy had to have cleared a half mile minimum in two minutes. Wow. He didn't. So, you know, he told me to leave. I did. There was no more conversation than that. He said, you can't be here. I turned and walked away. You know, like I said, it was about 150 yards back to the road. I, during that time, I whipped my phone out of my pocket, got to the road. At that point, I was good, so I didn't have to take my time. You're still kind of wondering what I've got behind me. Is it a man or is it a ghost? Or I don't know what the hell is the going crap on. Out of you, so yeah. I did. I, I got back to the road. I just turned around and click, click, click just for my own. You know, just just mental well-being, I guess. Yeah. You know, you just snap off a series of photos. Make sure I, I didn't expect crazy. anybody to be in the pictures. I really didn't. And, of course, there isn't. Uh, you know, my gut instinct tells me there wasn't anybody there. I mean, so much energy on that field. Oh, so many, so there's many dead so people. much down in Gettysburg. There, there was a, it, it wasn't there's it wasn't some really somebody, good footage down there. There's so much haunting down there. It yeah, wasn't somebody good. of today that asked me to leave the battlefield. I'm convinced of that. And uh, you know what? I get it. You didn't want me there. Yep, I'm yep. fine with that. I, you know, I, it was after dark. I shouldn't have been there anyway. I'm going to honor that. You guys gave up everything. It ain't too much to ask yep. me to walk on. Time to go. Off, so I did. Time to go. And, uh, that's awesome, man. That's a great story. Good story. Uh, so, yep. Uh, right. Thanks, right. guys, for listening. That is uh, episode five. Five. That's five. Episode five. Uh, so tune in next week uh, when Scott's going to talk about. Next week, I believe it is the Snedeker, uh, Snedeker uh, Family Haunting, which would be a haunting in Connecticut. Sorry. Nice. Uh, hopefully you guys are looking forward to that as uh, we're looking forward to doing it. And, uh, thanks, guys, for listening uh, sticking with us this long. So we'll see you next week. See you next week.
Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm the host of Tales, Trails, and Taverns. In this show, Rob and I like to take an active approach by hiking out to haunted, creepy, and abandoned places. We love the adventure and discovering the dark history of the locations we visit. We release a new episode every Friday on Apple, Spotify, and Patreon, as well as bonus episodes on varying Tuesdays. But don't just take my word for it, we have great listeners who have left some awesome reviews. Oh, I love adventure, but during those times when I can't get to the outback, oh, I like to listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Those boys dig deep into the dark history, and their first-hand experiences really delivers the excitement. This podcast is a beaut. Back when I was the governor, I didn't have time to listen to podcasts. But now that I'm retired from politics, I can focus on my two passions, pumping iron and listening to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is that we all listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. I love listening to the podcast. Wait, what's a podcast again? It's an audio show you listen to. Oh, like on the radio? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I love listening to Tulips and Tiddlywinks. It's Tales, Trails, and Taverns. And what do you do again? Hike to scary places and drink beer. Sounds terrifying. Okay. I like to listen to Terrifying Tea Time, but not on the radio. Uh, okay, thank you. You did great. You're welcome. Say, you're kind of cute. Is there a Mrs. Tales, Trails, and Taverns? Now... Now you get it? No actual celebrities or political figures have endorsed Tales, Trails, and Taverns. All the reviews you've heard were written, fully, by the host, George Linux, as well as the impersonations of celebrities, politicians, and movie characters. I meant no harm. Please don't sue me.